Well, I figured well, let's get started. The clock back there is at least five minutes slow. Pastor time? <laughs> so anyway, we are we are in Joshua chapter five, verse thirteen. And I am going to read, you follow along as I read, we are going to read those three verses and then all of chapter 6. So, take a little while, but I think it will be beneficial. I see several strolling in. Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. And it came to pass, as Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted his eye, lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, there stood a man over against him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went unto him and said unto him, Art thou for us or for our adversaries? And he said, Nay, but as captain of the host of the Lord am I now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship and said unto him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? And the captain of the Lord so said unto Joshua, Loose thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place whereon thou standest is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was straightly shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said unto Joshua, See, I have given into thine hand Jericho and the king thereof and the mighty men of valor. And ye shall compass the city, all ye men of war, and go round about the city once. Thus shalt thou do six days. And seven priests shall bear before the ark seven trumpets of ram's horns, and the seventh day ye shall compass the city seven times, and the priests shall blow at the trumpets. And it shall come to pass that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when ye hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city shall fall down flat, and the people shall ascend up every man straight before him. And Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said unto them, Take up the ark of the covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said unto the people, Pass on and compass the city, and let him that is armed pass on before the ark of the Lord. It came to pass when Joshua had spoken unto the people that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns passed on before the Lord, and blew at the trumpets, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord followed them. And the armed men went before the priests that blew at the trumpets, and the rearward came after the ark, the priests going on and blowing with the trumpets. And Joshua had commanded the people, saying, Ye shall not shout nor make any noise with your voice, neither shall any word proceed out of your mouth, until the day I bid you shout, then shall ye shout. So the ark of the Lord compassed the city, going about it once, and they came into the camp and lodged in the camp. And Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And seven priests, bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord, went on continually and blew at the trumpets. And the armed men went before them, but the rearward came after the ark of the Lord, the priests going on and blowing with the trumpets. And the second day they compassed the city once and returned into camps, so they did six days. And it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early about the dawning of the day and compassed the city after the same manner seven times, only on that day they compassed the city seven times. And it came to pass at the, six, at the seventh time when the priests blew at the trumpets, Joshua said unto the people, Shout, for the Lord hath given you the city. And the city shall be accursed, even it and all that are therein to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all that are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And ye in any wise keep yourselves from the accursed thing, lest ye make yourselves accursed, when you take of the accursed thing and make the camp of Israel accursed and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of brass and iron are consecrated unto the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord." So the people shouted when the priests blew with the trumpets, and it came to pass when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. 
And they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, and ox and sheep and ass with the edge of the sword. But Joshua had said unto the two men that had spied out the country, Go into the harlot's house and bring out thence the woman and all that she hath as ye swear unto her. And the young men that were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brethren and all that she had. And they brought out all her kindred and left them without the camp of Israel. And they burnt the city with fire and all that was therein. Only the silver and the gold and the vessels of brass and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. And Joshua saved Rahab the harlot alive and her father's household and all that she had. And she dwelleth in Israel even unto this day, because she hid the messengers which Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. And Joshua adjured them at that time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord that riseth up and buildeth this city Jericho. He shall lay the foundation thereof in his firstborn, and in his youngest son shall he set up the gates of it. And the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was noised throughout all the country. And let's pray. Father, again, it's always a privilege to come and study your word, and I pray that it would be profitable for us. I pray that you would guide me and just give me clarity and and help its meaning to be clear to all of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in verse 13, we see that Joshua was by Jericho. He was probably being proactive. He was probably um, gathering intelligence, um, scouting out the, the city of Jericho, knowing that they were about to conquer that city. He was probably planning an attack. He might have been uh, just out praying for wisdom. We're not told clearly what he was doing. But again, I, I think as I've pointed out uh, a few other times, I think um, we see that Joshua was was proactive in that he wasn't just, you know, he had the promise of the Lord in chapter 1, verse 5, that God was going to give them the victory. But yet he, his attitude wasn't that I'm just going to sit back and do nothing. We see that he was very much always active and very much in diligent, in diligent pursuit of whatever the Lord would have him do. He was essentially doing his part. And then, of course, we see that Joshua encountered a man. And, you know, was this a man? Was this an angel? Was this the Lord Jesus Christ? Was this God Himself? Um, I would say yes, 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 and yes. Um, I don't think that it's probably something that we need to be confused over. I think the Bible purposefully and inconsistently blurs the distinction and I want, to, I want to have us look at several passages of Scripture that deal with similar circumstances so that um, we can see that I think the Bible is consistent in this area, that we don't need to necessarily come to a distinction between which of exactly these it was. Turn back to Genesis chapter 16. Like I said, we're going to look at several passages of Scripture. I hope it's beneficial, but I think it does lay the groundwork for establishing that that this encounter is very similar and consistent with a lot of other encounters. Genesis chapter 16, verse 7, and of course we have this is the account of Sarah and her handmaid. Let's start with verse 6. It says, But Abram said unto Sarah, Behold, thy maid is in thy hand, do to her as it pleaseth thee. And when Sarah dealt hardly with her, she fled from her face. And the angel of the Lord found her, this is Hagar, and the angel of the Lord found her by a fountain of water in the wilderness by the the fountain in the way to Shur. And then the the following verses are a a discussion that, that Hagar has with this angel. But notice in verse number 13. It says, And she called the name of the Lord that spake unto her, Thou God seest me. For she said, Have I also here looked after him that seeth me? In other words, have I have I seen God? That was her that was her that was her conclusion that even though she had seen an angel, that she had also seen God. Turn to Genesis chapter thirty one and look at a, a similar account with Jacob. Genesis chapter thirty one verse eleven. And the angel of God spake unto me in a dream, saying, Jacob, and I said, Here am I. Now notice verse 13. I am the God of Bethel, 
where thou anointest the pillar and where thou thou vowest a vow unto me. Now arise, get thee out from this land and return unto the land of thy kindred. So again, we have an angel, but we also have God. Turn to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, verse 2. We're all very familiar with this account of Moses and the burning bush. Exodus chapter 3, verse 2, And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the midst of the bush. Now, I thought in verse 2 it was an angel, but here we're seeing that it's also God. Verse number six, moreover, he said, well, let's read verse number five. And he said, draw not nigh hither, but put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And let's turn to Acts chapter seven in the New Testament. Just looking at the New Testament version of this same account, Acts chapter 7, verse number 30. And when forty years were expired, there appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai an angel of the Lord in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he wondered at the sight, and as he drew near to behold it, the voice of the Lord came unto him, saying, I am the God of thy fathers, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses trembled and durst not behold. Verse number 35, This Moses, whom they refused, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge? The same did God send to be a ruler and a deliverer, by the hand of the angel which appeared to him in the bush. You see how it just keeps switching back and forth. It's, they're, they're used interchangeably. An angel speaking, and yet at the same time, God is speaking. Turn back to Judges chapter 6. I'm going to look at two more accounts of these encounters that people had with angels. Judges chapter 6, verse number 11. And this is, of course, the story of Gideon. Judges chapter 6, verse number 11. And there came an angel of the Lord and sat under an oak, which was in Ophrah, that pertained unto Joash the Abias right, and his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Verse number 14. And the Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent thee? It just kind of switches from the angel to the Lord. Verse number 17, And he said unto him, If now I have found grace in thy sight, then show me a sign that thou talkest with me. What Gideon is really saying is here, show me a sign that you, God, and the angel are one. Verse number 20, And the angel of God said unto him, Take the flesh and the unleavened cakes and lay them upon this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put forth the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the flesh and the unleavened cakes, and there rose up fire out of the rock, and consumed the flesh and the unleavened cakes. Then the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. And when Gideon perceived that he was an angel of the Lord, Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for because I have seen an angel of the Lord face to face. And then turn to Judges chapter 13. This is the story of the birth of Samson and Manoah and his wife. Judges chapter 13, verse 3. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto the woman and said unto her, Behold, now thou art barren and bearest not, but thou shalt conceive and bear a son. And then turn to verse 22. And Manoah said unto his wife, We shall surely die because we have seen God. But his wife said unto him, If the Lord were pleased to kill us, he would not have received a burnt offering and a meat offering at our hands, neither would he have showed us all these things, nor would, as at this time, have told us such things as thee. Now you can turn back to Joshua chapter 6. So again, I think the Bible is, uh, purposely seems to blur those lines. It seems to use, it seems to switch back and use those 
those references interchangeably, whether or not it's an angel speaking or the Lord speaking. Um, there's a lot of discussion and, and, and various individuals have tried to nail down and make their argument and their case for exactly which one it is. And, and, and as I was studying this, I don't really see the point. Uh, it kind of, to me, seems like arguing over election or free will or you know whether or not Jesus was God or man. It's both. And so I think the important thing here is that God clearly had a message that he wanted to communicate with Joshua. And so arguing over exactly how that message was delivered really does seem to be a little bit futile. Now, in verse number in verse number 13, we also see that the sword was drawn. This was likely to encourage Joshua that war was expected. Um. This is, you know, someday we know Christ is going to appear and he in the book of Revelation tells us that he's going to judge the entire world with a sword. That's one of the arguments for, that people use to uh, bolster their case for this person here being a uh, being Christ in the flesh, being a pre-incarnate version of Christ. I, I have no problem with that. Again, I, I don't see that there's really any you know reason to argue about the distinction. And this is not a unique uh, experience. There are other occasions in the Bible where a, an angel is, has appeared with a drawn sword. We're familiar with the, um, the situation back in Numbers where Balaam was prohibited from going and placing a curse on the Israelites because of the drawn sword. And you remember his ass was backed up and, and was throwing him against the wall because of the, the angel that was standing there with the sword. And then David also encountered an angel with a drawn sword. When David had numbered the Israelites, God was very angry with him, and the angel of the Lord appeared to David with a drawn sword and had expressed to David that many Israelites were going to die as a result of his sin. And so again, this this example here of an angel with a drawn sword is not unique. Now Joshua has a question uh, there at the end of verse 13. He says, Art thou for us or for our adversaries? It was obviously not clear to him at first uh, whether or not it was a, a messenger of God or whether or not it was merely the enemy. This warrior, this man may have been dressed as, as to appear as to be a warrior. Um, Hebrews 13.1 says some people have entertained angels unawares. Um, certainly in several of the accounts that we looked at where people had encountered angels, they were not immediately aware that they were dealing with an angel. And I suspect that if, uh, if most of us had an encounter with an angel, we would probably have the same, uh, you know, our reaction would be the same as that of Joshua. We would fall down and worship if, you know, once it became clear to us that that was, you know, that we were dealing with divinity, that we had an encounter with God. But Joshua has to ask the question. He's not certain. In verse number 14, this, this angel calls himself, this man calls himself the captain of the host of the Lord or the commander in chief. And again, Jesus is called the captain of our salvation in Hebrews 2.10. That's another one of the arguments for this being a, a, an example of the pre-incarnate Christ. Host here means army. And whether or not that is referring to uh, the army of all of the angels, all of the spiritual forces at God's disposal, or whether or not that is a reference to the army, referring to the the army of the men, the Israelites, or, or maybe it's a reference to both. I don't know that we can be certain. But Joshua immediately recognizes the, the divinity of this person and falls down and begins to worship him. And, you know, this, would, this is consistent with what, we would, with what we would expect of Joshua. He just always seems to demonstrate great humility. And we see that the, the response of Joshua is to ask the question, you know, essentially he says, you know, what saith my Lord unto his servant? Joshua says, what, you know, what would you have me to do? I am at your service, in other words. And we know that when Paul uh, was blinded by the light, and that was his response. He felt down and he said, Lord, what will they have me to do? So Joshua's consistent is very Joshua's reaction is very consistent to the reaction of the Apostle Paul. And there's there's also, uh, again, an illustration here that Joshua, uh, you know, as a great leader, he also was a great servant. He always set an example of, you know, uh, 
He knew not just how to give commands, but he also knew how to obey. And then in verse 15, we see that God demands worship, respect, and reverence. Uh, Joshua, as all of us, must understand his inferiority. Um, the example given here, or the, the, the story told here, is the same as that that we have of Moses that we looked at in Exodus chapter 3, where he's told to remove his shoes. And of course, our dirty shoes are not worthy to touch the same ground that our Lord walks on. Our, our shoes pick up all kinds of things, and you know who knows what's underneath of our shoes. When I was out in the fellowship center yesterday, I got some paint on the bottom of my shoe and began tracking that around, and just was a you know drew attention to the fact that you just you just pick up all kinds of things underneath your shoe. I was watching the news a, a week or two ago, and I just thought it was. Kind of funny the way it was worded. There was this lady giving a report of the the talks that are going on with the new leader of Iran regarding the you know the nuclear crisis and the sanctions that are that have been imposed. And she said, as she was reporting on the story, she said that. And, and if you've been following the story, you understand that this new leader of Iran, in in the eyes of some of the Iranians, appears to be kind of soft. You know that he's starting to warm up to the idea of cooperating with the rest of the world. And so somebody had thrown a shoe at him in one of the press conferences that he had given. And and so as this lady was reporting on it, she says, throwing shoes is highly offensive in the Middle East. I just thought it was funny the way she said that. Because, you know, we don't really, we don't place the same emphasis on on that that they would. But, you know, that was a big deal to them. And part of the idea there is that, you know, the shoe is such a, a low thing, and it's such a dirty thing, and so that's the way that they express their disgust with somebody. And then at the end of verse 15, we see the the uh, the last four words, which you know uh, I think kind of characterizes the entire book. It says, "And Joshua did so," and that just seems to be, uh, you know, uh, you know, again th- throughout the book, we see that Joshua is very obedient. He's very submissive to the Lord. And that's just a great illustration to us. And then the question, you know, we could ask the question, why did the Lord, why did God appear to Joshua? And I think we see at least three reasons in verses 14 and 15 here of chapter 5. It seems clear God just wanted to make it clear He was in charge. That's a great reminder that many of us need. Just wanted to make sure, you know, not that there's any evidence that Joshua had been getting a big head or that he thought that he was all this or all that as the leader of Israel, but God just wanted to make it clear that, that he answered to someone and that God was really in charge of this entire operation, that this was all God's doing, that God was bringing them into the promised land. Again, we give, we give Joshua and Moses a lot of credit for leading the people, but the Lord is ultimately the one that leads, and he is the captain. But the second reason in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, is that God appears to give him reassurance of the victory. Notice in, verses one, notice in verse 2, and it says, And the Lord said unto Joshua, See, I have given into thine hand Jericho for the king and the king thereof and the mighty men of valor. Again, I, I, you know, I keep repeating myself, but God has already given a Joshua assurance of victory numerous times now already, just in the first six chapters. And yet he does it here again. And, you know, again, I, I see this as characteristic of each one of us. We all need constant reminders that God is going to give us the victory. We know that God is going to give us the victory. We can turn to passages of Scripture that tell us that God's going to give us the victory. We know in 1 John 5 4, it says faith is the victory. And we know in 1 Corinthians 15 57 that we're going to have the victory someday. And yet it's good to have reminders. It's reassuring to have the reminders. And it's, you know, and that's why it's important for us to constantly be reading our Bibles so that we're reminded of those things. And Joshua's getting that confirmation yet again. And then the third reason that this, that this person appears to Joshua, and again in verse 2, it says, and the Lord said, that's, that's another indication that this, uh, this person that is speaking with Joshua is not merely a man, as, as is originally stated there in verse 13, but is in fact the Lord. Um, the third reason that, that is given is, that, is to give Joshua the instructions for the plan of attack, or you know, really just the instructions to march around the city. 
And um, many people feel that the chapter division here, most people feel, it's really not much of much in dispute, most people feel that the chapter division here is very misplaced. That the that verses 13 of chapter 5 through ch- verse 5 of chapter 6 really form a one entire event, one encounter with the Lord. That this is the the man appearing in verse 13 and then continuing to discuss this you know, continuing to have this discussion with Joshua all the way up through verse number five, you know, and giving him the instructions for for how they're going to to prepare to attack Jericho. Now, in verse number one, it says Jericho was straightly shut up. It was tightly secured. Jericho is one of the oldest inhabited cities. It is one of the most it was one of the most contested places throughout throughout human history. Uh, it is four times in the Bible referred to as the city of palm trees. In Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 3, it is referred to as the city of palm trees. And God had taken Moses up to Mount Nebo to view the promised land and had Moses specifically look at the city of Jericho. And, you know, in some way, you know, you might think, man, that was almost kind of mean, you know, it was like teasing him, you know, you can see it, but you can't, you can't have it. But yet Moses had wanted to see it. You know, he had requested to see it. But many believe that that he was shown the promised land from Mount Nebo specifically because this area of Jericho was just considered the best. It was the the richest area. It was it was the fertile land. It was beautiful, and you know, which was the reference to the palm trees. And so again, it was a highly contested area. Now it is. It's they've got it secured. The the walls, um, you know, there's just a tremendous amount of archaeological evidence about the excavations that have been done over the last hundred years, and you know the walls were there was thought to have been two walls, uh, one six foot wide, the other twelve foot wide. Sometimes the walls were, in some places, the walls were as high as forty six feet. And um, in Deuteronomy 1.28, the unbelieving spies, when they had come back, the ten that, that didn't give the glowing report like Joshua and Caleb, when they had come back, they had said in Deuteronomy 1.28 that the walls extend all the way to heaven. Obviously an exaggeration, but, but nevertheless a description of just how intimidating these walls would have been. And so verse number one is really letting us know what a... What a tremendous uh, obstacle this is! You know what a what a task, a very difficult task this would be for them to penetrate these walls. And of course, that's the whole point. You know, that's the point that's being made here: is that they're not going to be penetrating these walls. They're not going to be bringing down these walls. It's God that is going to be bringing down these walls. It's God that's going to give them the victory. It's it's really letting us know that in and of themselves, they wouldn't have been able to pull this off. And you know, the uh, the again, the, the people they're they're walled up in this city. They're locked in. They they think they have shut them off, themselves off from the outside world. I, I see this as very illustrative of our unbelieving world today. They have just put up a wall. They are doing everything they can to to cut off interaction with with God's people. They don't want anything to do with us. They they you know they frequently refer to the wall, but of separation between church and state. And someday God's going to tear down those walls. But people are rebellious. They're obstinate. And they have hardened hearts. And that's what they want to do. They want to, they want to keep God out the same way that these Canaanites did. Verse number 3 begins the instructions for the besiege or the, the siege of the city. And... Uh, Actually, notice in verse number two, God doesn't say he's going to give them the city. He says, I have given. He's already given them the victory. It's as, in God's eyes, it's as though it's done. And the king and the mighty men of valor, um, you know, again, the point is being made. It doesn't matter, you know, whatever, the, the best the world has to offer are no match for God. I mean, it's it's really... Raising, you know, the expectations there. It's letting us know that this is a this is going to be a difficult undertaking. Dif- difficult in men's eyes, certainly not difficult in the Lord's eyes. And in verse number three, we we have the instructions which 
you know, from a human perspective, would probably just seem to be ridiculous. Um, you know, who who formulates a strategy for war today that involves marching around a city and putting ourselves at risk and, you know, uh, those types of things. The instructions don't include battering rams. They don't include fire, trebuchets, digging under the wall. None of the things that, that we would probably think of. But they do include the ark, the sign of God's presence. And, and that's, that's the focal, that's the focus of, of this chapter. Just like it was the focus of the, the chapters three and four where, where we were looking at they were getting ready to, to cross the Jordan River. The focus is on God. The ark is mentioned almost as many times in this chapter, in chapter six, as it was in chapters three and four. Because the emphasis is supposed to be on God. We're supposed to understand clearly that this is a spiritual endeavor. This is not a display of, of you know, this is not an opportunity to put on the, the the display of how mighty Israel's army is. This is all about God and what He's going to do to, to take the city. But nevertheless, it mentions the men of war. They're being called on to do something a little bit different than they normally would have. You know, they're, they're being called on to march. They, they might have, you know, scoffed at that. They might have thought, well, maybe this seems a little bit silly. But nevertheless, they are obedient. And again, this is the point. God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His strategy is going to be different than what our strategy would be. Notice in verse number four, the, the, the numerous times that we see the number seven. We have seven priests carrying seven trumpets for seven days, and they march around seven times on the seventh day. And of course, that's no accident. The book of Revelation is packed with the significance of the number seven. It is the mark of God. It is the, is the number of completeness. It, it's the number that really carries God's stamp of approval and His seal on this entire event. God will destroy their religion. The name Jericho means moon city. It was probably named by the Canaanites for their worship of the lunar deities. And, you know, God takes pleasure um, in destroying all other religions. He, he takes pleasure in demonstrating His great power and just overthrowing any false gods that are out there. And so God is, you know, God His targets, clips, you know, set clearly on this city of Jericho. And then we see in uh, verse number 4 that they are to use ram's horns for trumpets. And what is the significance of that type of trumpet? I don't know. Uh, I, you know, I've, there's a lot of speculation. I mean, there's a distinctive sound. It's a dull, annoying sound by most accounts. It's considered to be a, a noise that would have been much less preferable than the noise that was made from the trumpets that, that were made of silver or, or other types of metal. Um, you know, we're told that many times the... The ark was, when it was being moved under the leadership of King David, he had it announced with the, with, you know, the blowing of trumpets. But we're never told in those books that David used ram's horns. We're, I think the, the implication, or at least the, the belief is, is that when David had the trumpets blown to, to arrive, to announce the arrival of the ark, it was metal trumpets. This is something different. Some people believe that it was it was commonality to remove any doubt of, of there being anything, you know, just just to, to allow the focus to be entirely on God, you know, not anything shiny and glittery and glamorous, you know, such as silver trumpets might have been. I, I don't know. Um, it, it, you know, clearly the, the idea here is that, though, they're announcing the the presence of the ark. I mean, that's that's the point. You know, the, the, the trumpets are to draw attention to the ark so that when, you know, when you have this huge procession marching around the city, God wants the attention drawn to the ark. He wants the attention drawn to him so that it's known that he is the one that is that is in charge of this entire operation. And it's he that's going to make it happen. Verse number five makes it clear that the trumpets were were to be blown every day. And actually, if you look at verses 8 and 9 and 13, they also convey the message that the, the trumpets were to be blown every day. And of course, verse 10 says the people were to be quiet. Now, on the seventh day, in verse number 5, it says on the last day, the, the trumpet would be, the, the blast of the trumpet would be much longer than, than that on the first day. 
And it says the, the walls will fall down flat. Obviously, the Canaanites would be so dispirited when, the, when, the wall, when their walls of defense are crumbled. And this is psychological warfare. Just simply being defined as, you know, having the enemy do something that, that uh, you know, that the, other, that the other party cannot understand. I mean, th- there's no doubt that, you know, the Israelites would have had enough difficulty understanding exactly why God was having him do the things that they were doing. Certainly the Canaanites, you know, they would have even been more puzzled as to you know, what kind of a strategy is this. I'm sure that they had never encountered any type of, of enemy that had employed this kind of kind of a strategy. The noise of the horns, the sight the the march was close enough to the wall that the, the Israelite soldiers were probably exposed to enemy fire. They could have been firing on them from the top of the walls, but yet God protected them. So this is very unconventional. Some have wondered about the noise of the trumpets. Um, in 1989, the U.S. military forced drug lord Manuel Noriega to surrender by blaring rock music outside the embassy in Panama. They did that for four consecutive days. Um, this is different than that, though. Um, this is, this is, uh, you know, they're marching around the city once each of the first six days. I don't know how long it would have taken to march around that city, but... I'm envisioning, you know, maybe an hour or two. I mean, if you've ever been to Devil's Tower in South Dakota and you've walked around that, it takes about an hour to walk around that. And and from what I could gather, the city of Jericho probably wasn't that much larger. The excavations of the walls have uh, kind of revealed the size of the city, and it wouldn't have taken that long for them to to have walked around it. So even though these verses make it clear that the Trumpets were being blown through during the entire march. Once the march was over, they were retreating back to their camp, you know, as it, as it shows here in these verses. And so this wouldn't have been noise that would have been continuous all day. Um, and, you know, even if even if the idea there was to, to make a noise that would have been annoying to the Canaanites, I'm not exactly sure how... Um, you know, you would have made it annoying to the Canaanites without it also making it annoying to the Israelites at the same time. So I'm not quite sure of the, the reasoning there. But uh, it's interesting to note that some of the, uh, you know, the attempts that we have made, that our military, like the situation I mentioned where they, where they did in Panama with the, um, you know, with the playing of the music to drive out the, the drug lord, um, yeah, the United Nations has condemned that as, as uh, you know, musical torture, and it's not within the Geneva Conventions, you know. And uh, I'm sure God has employed a lot of strategies over the years that have not met the approval of the United Nations, and certainly the ones he's going to employ in the future are not going to meet the the standards of the United Nations. Also, about uh, interesting thing to note about this strategy is that um, it probably would have been very difficult for these men of war to do nothing but march and rely on the Lord. Um, They're used to, you know, like many of us, we have a tendency to want to rely on ourselves. And it's difficult to just sit back and wait on the Lord. It's difficult to, to put everything in his hands. And so this is a test of their faith and their patience. And they have to endure ridicule. Ridicule. More li- most likely, there would have been plenty of ridicule. You know, the Canaanites would have just thought, "What, what a ridiculous strategy this is!" You know, and they would have, they would have just, you know, laughed at the, the notion that somehow this march was going to to deliver the city to them. But yet again, you know, that's something that as believers we have to be willing to endure. Endure. We have to be able, willing to endure ridicule. A lot of the things that we do in the in the name of the Lord. The, the unbelieving world is, doesn't understand. I mean, if, if they, you know, if you, you know, if you spent very much time talking to unbelievers, a lot of times when you are mentioning to them things that you're doing, they, they just think, well, that, that just seems strange. It doesn't make any sense. Why would, why would you do those kinds of things? But God's ways don't make sense to them. Verse number seven. It's a, in verses 7 and 8, it, it, it makes it pretty clear that there are four groups of people. There are, there are the armed men that go first. 
Then they're followed by the seven priests blowing the trumpets. And then they're followed by the priests carrying the ark. And then there's the rear guard. And there's some debate about whether or not that rear guard included common civilians, people who weren't in the military, people. Now, if you look at verse 3, it says, And ye shall compass the city, all ye men of war. Um, But yet, some people think that the way verse 7 is worded, where it makes reference to the fact that the armed people were to go before the ark, seems to imply that maybe there were unarmed people that were behind the ark. And I don't know. Um, seems a little risky to have put civilians in the march. I noticed when I, when I, I remember years ago when I watched the, uh, the kids' movies, whatever they are, the Hanna-Barbera or whatever, that my, they have, you know, seemingly the entire Israelites in the march. And, you know, when they give the shout, it's the women and the children that are a part of that. I, again, I don't know that it's really clear here. I don't know that the text really supports that. But um, but nevertheless, um, you know, with or without civilians included in the march, um, it's it's believed that the city was probably small enough that that the 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 train of people would have completely surrounded the entire city. I mean, and that's, you know, many people, many lines long um, so that, you know, the ones that were last would have been. You know, right behind the, you know, the ones, you know, as, as the ones that had gone first were just getting started, the other ones would just be going out. And of course, if you've ever, you know, watched the news and you see how the, the Boston Marathon, you know, some of these marathons where they have, you know, 50,000 people running, you understand the congestion. And certainly there would have been a lot of soldiers involved in this type of, you know, in, in this endeavor. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot going on here. Um, in verse number eight, we just see that they faithfully follow the Lord's instructions. I mean, that's just in and of itself noteworthy. I mean, they are praised later on in the book of Hebrews for doing just that. It says the walls of Jericho came down by faith. When they gave the shout, they were demonstrating their faith and they, that they were believing the Lord's, the Lord's promise. Also, the fact that we have several of these different groups of people involved. Again, we have the, the armed men going in the front, we have the rear guard, and you have those that are blowing the trumpet. You have those that are carrying the, the ark. Um, each one performs their duty, and not everybody has the same duty. Uh, God has a plan and a purpose for everybody, and not everybody's, not, not everybody's task is going to be the same. Not everybody is going to be at the forefront. Not everybody is going to get the spotlight. But it's important that each person fulfill the responsibility and the duty that they have been given. And, you know, the Bible says if we're, you know, if we want to be given greater responsibility, we need to demonstrate that we can be faithful with the small tasks that we have been given. And another thing that always good for me to keep in mind is that we're not always real good at identifying whether or not something is a small task or a large task. Something that may seem insignificant to us may seem significant to the Lord or, or vice versa. And so we have to keep that in mind. Verse number 10. Again, we have Joshua telling them they must be quiet. Now, some people have argued this is why they know there wasn't any women in the march. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but people, some people have made that point. Um, Exodus 14.14 has the same, really, turn back to Exodus chapter 14, verse 14, and we we see the same thing uh, when they were getting ready to flee Egypt. Exodus chapter 14, verse 14. Moses is given the instructions. And in verse 14, he says, The Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. And, and again, you know, um, the question, you know, what, why was it important for them to, to hold their peace? Why was it important to be quiet? I, I'm not exactly sure. Um, but, you know, looking at it in conjunction with Exodus 14:14, 14, 14, maybe the idea was that, that it was just going to allow each person to really remain more focused on the Lord. You know, instead of being 
carrying on a conversation with the person next to them about just, you know, the common cares of the day. The silence was a reminder to them. The silence would have given them the opportunity to hear the trumpets that were being blown, which again, were, were going before the ark. And so maybe the whole idea was to make sure that the people's minds were focused on the Lord. And certainly it, it's easier to focus on something when there's, when there's silence, when there's quiet. Um, Probably a, a good reminder for why it's important to teach children to be quiet in church because distractions, you know, they prohibit people from really, you know, hearing the entire message and, and you know, get, getting distracted. And, and maybe that was the idea here, that these people were just really to make sure that their focus was on, was on the Lord and what he was doing. And certainly being able to hear the sound of those trumpets would have, you know, would have allowed for that. And then verse 12 says, And Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priest took up the ark. Now, this is the second day. And it's, it's kind of interesting to think about the rising early. Um, we're told they rose early on the last day, but on the last day, the seventh day, they were going to march around the city seven times. So... Certainly, it was going to take a lot longer. They were going to need more time. But on the second day, Joshua's attitude could have been, it's going to be just like the first day. I mean, the Bible kind of makes that point that the first six days were essentially the same. So, the, you know, the idea could have been, you know, Joshua's thought could have been it certainly wasn't but it could have been well I don't need to get up early on the second day I I know exactly what's in store we're going to go through the same thing that we did yesterday I can sleep in but that just always seems to be inconsistent with Joshua's attitude that wasn't his attitude now one, one reason maybe they got up early was one of the ideas is that again as this march began and you hear the sound of the trumpets um the idea was to make sure that the Canaanites, that that was the first thing that they heard in the morning. You know, so that they were reminded that the Israelites were out there, that they were carrying the ark, that God was at work. And, you know, but we're not really told exactly. I, you know, again, I don't know that, I, I don't, I just don't think that we're given any details uh, that aren't important. So exactly what the significance of that is, I'm not, I'm not real sure. Uh, it could just be the general attitude that, you know, that Joshua had, that he just wasn't going to, you know, always, you know, kind of the attitude that some people have, you know, I know it only takes me six minutes to get to church, so I'm going to leave at 9.54 and let's hope the kids all found their shoes and everybody knows where their Bible is and I can time all the street lights just right. I mean, really, maybe that's the idea here. That Joshua didn't, op- he didn't go through life that way, that he didn't operate that way, that he just got up and wanted to ensure that they had plenty of time to make sure they were going to get the tasks done that the Lord had commanded them to do. Things don't always go smoothly. I'm sure the Watleys ran into the same thing we did today. We ran into a, a, a wreck on the interstate, which was a little bit of a delay. And you know, so you just, you gotta, you gotta allow for things like that. And so even though Joshua may have thought, well, you know, the second through sixth days are going to be exactly like the first day, uh, he had to plan accordingly. The sounds of the trumpet probably served a dual purpose, um, to discourage the enemy, but also to encourage the Israelites. I've kind of touched on this already, but again, it was a reminder to them of God's presence and God's protection. And those in the back of the march wouldn't have been able to, you know, see exactly. They wouldn't have been able to see the ark, but they would have known that everything was proceeding on unobstructed because of the sound of the trumpets. That would have been the reminder to them that everything was just fine. Verse number 14, and they did the same thing for six days. And, you know, God could have caused the walls to fall down after the first day. He could have caused the walls to fall down without any of these marches. But... This is what he. This is how he chooses to do it. Um, taking seven days may have allowed, may have caused the Canaanites to become complacent. You know, it might have uh, caused them to. Certainly, they didn't know when this thing was going to end, and so they might have kind of, uh, you know, put their guard down, so to speak. Um, 
First Peter 3 reminds us that God's delay today has caused many unbelievers to doubt that He's ever coming. And so God's delays are there, there for a reason. And I've heard people say that. When I try to witness to people, I've heard people throw that argument out, the exact thing that, that 1 Peter 3 condemns. I can't believe you guys are still waiting for the Lord to come. You've been waiting for 2,000 years. And that's a test of our faith. That's, that's a true test of whether or not we believe God's Word. Verse number 15, on the seventh day, they get up really early. And this time they're going to march around the city seven times. The uh, question comes up, since they had to do this seven days, then, then clearly they had to have marched on a Sabbath day, and so were they in violation of the Sabbath in doing so? And I would say certainly not. Um, the, God is, is in charge of the laws that He gave. He gave those laws for our benefit and for our, uh, you know, for our needing to obey, not His. He can, you know, he can rescind them at any time. I mean, this is, his, this is the Lord's work that He's commanding be done. And so, you know, certainly those same rules wouldn't have applied. Certainly, if this would have been, if they would have been out doing something that was for their own benefit, uh, and and doing that on the Sabbath, then yeah, then that would be a violation of the Sabbath. But not to, not to have been obedient to the Lord. And then verse sixteen. It came to pass at the at the seventh time when the priests blew at the trumpets, Joshua said unto the people, Shout, for the Lord hath given you the city. Joshua now instructs them to break their silence. And again, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 11. I just want to point out the significance of this. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 30. Something as seemingly insignificant of this is of, is of great importance. It's noted here. And it, it demonstrates their faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse Thirty by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after that after they were compassed about seven days. By faith the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace. So there in verse thirty, it wasn't just the shout, but it was it was the entire event. It was the um, the the being obedient to God's commands throughout that entire seven day process and the. The, the act of their obedience was a demonstration of their faith. And that's really what, you know, here in Hebrews chapter 11 is all about. It's, it's bringing to our attention the fact that, that people's faith in, in the Lord's word was demonstrated by their actions, was demonstrated, was demonstrated by their being obedient. Okay, we're uh, just about out of time. Does anybody have anything they want to add? And we'll uh, pick up next week, verse 17. Anybody? Anybody want to comment or make a point? I, you know, I try to remind you every week if you want to just interject anytime you feel you need to. I'll try to take notice. Anyone? All right, you're dismissed. <laughs>